Because we had an awesome time at base camp this week. The, uh, God showed up. God showed up like he always does. He's incredibly faithful. We had a whole bunch of kids from other churches. I met this one little kid, reminded me of Mark Moran when he was a little kid. Um, like this firecracker. How many people here know Mark Moran? Okay, you know him. He used to be this big when he was like 12. And he would do cartwheels and backflips during worship. Like, really, at the Lord's Gathering, that's where we met him. He, would have, he had a spiked mohawk, and he would do backflips and cartwheels with full energy during worship. So there was this other young kid, he was constantly in that, like, white wife beater's t-shirt thing. You guys at base can know who he is. I was talking to him. This kid... I couldn't take my eyes off him. Like, he was wild. I was like, who is this kid? How do I not know him? Well, he lives, like, walking distance from here. Yeah, he lives right up the street. And he goes to Granite United Church, which is another cool church in the area. And I didn't know that. And he said something, though, again, and I was like, we get this a lot. It's not something we can, we can just pass by. He started saying, I need to figure out a way to go to both churches. He was like, when's your youth group? And they told him it's Monday night. He was like, yes, my youth group's Wednesday nights. I can do both. Because before that, he was saying, I'm going to go to church at one and youth group at the other, and I don't know which way I'm going to do it yet. And I was like, really? Well, what? Wh- why, why are you trying to go to both? Right? Craig was there, right? And he said, man, there's just something different about this place. He's like, it feels just like the Holy Spirit is here. And we're like, that's really cool. It's cool to hear, and this is a weird experience that happens, right? For like a split second, you feel a sense of pride. (laughs) And then in the next split second, the Holy Spirit says, "Uh, excuse me, let me get in front here. Right? And you're like, oh yeah, there's literally nothing of us. Like, God is showing up. This guy's not responding because we're awesome, and he's calling it the Holy Spirit. He's responding because the Holy Spirit is literally deciding to, to move and show himself in this place in a unique way. And all we can do is be grateful for it. Like, that's it. And it's, it's this, like, ecosystem because God responds to gratitude, Right? where he will be lifted up and magnified and worshipped and praised because we're grateful to him for being here in the first place, that's a place he wants to be. That's a place he's going to continue to show up. And so I just was like, man, this is just true. He really always shows up. Every encounter weekend we've ever done, he's shown up. Every base camp we've ever done, he's shown up. Every winter encounter we've done, he's shown up for 20 years. And we just live in this place. And it feels normal to those of us who have been around for a long time. Even even expected. But we don't realize that this is not normal. And it's not what most people expect. They don't expect it. They don't expect it because... They've never experienced it or have experienced it so infrequently that there is no expectation for it. 
And we get to live in it. But we get to live in it only to the proportion that we continually take our shoes off and remember that we're on holy ground. That we are standing in the place that God has chosen to be present in a specific and unique way. And that demands reverence and response and worship in every expression and form. And that's what, that's just one of the things like base camp and these winter encounters they remind us of because it's young people who come and they, they haven't quite lived this life of expecting it. It hasn't become the norm for them yet. And they show up at base camp and they encounter God. And they respond with such energy and expression and abandonment to it that every service and every night they flood it. I'll tell you what, listen. I know that when I come to church here on a Sunday and preach to adults, the only way adults are coming up front is if there's a provocative altar call. Like where there's something that's put out there, guys, come up and respond to the Lord. And I was preaching Friday night at base camp, and I was still in the middle of preaching, and like everyone just got out of their seats and came up front. I hadn't done any altar call. I basically said, all right, guys, let's just expect from God. Let's go after God right now. And it, like, like on cue, they were all just rushed to the front and like went past me. I'm standing where I am, and they just passed me and went right to the altar. And I thought it was the coolest experience because they went right past me. Because every day and every night of base camp, they knew where they needed to be to get what they came for. And it wasn't in front of me. And it wasn't to be prayed for by me. They ran right up here to the altar and just began to worship. And it was the easiest altar call. I didn't have to pray for a single person. I ended up praying for a couple, but like no one was standing in line waiting for the preacher to pray for them. They knew who they could go to and they went to him. And that was exciting. It was exciting to watch, exciting to see. It's invigorating. You know, when I was here every night, the night before, we had this guy who was like, uh, just had that, that testimony. He came from the drugs and the streets and the partying, and now he's a fiery evangelist, you know, moving in the gifts, and the kids got to be prayed for and prophesied to. And that was exciting. And so then, when... I found out, like, hey, I'm preaching today. My only thought was, man, how can the adults tap into the supernatural drive, hunger, and desire, and lifestyle that these young people are chasing after? Right, because I love this church, I love this body, I love the young people, I love the old people. And there are strengths and weaknesses in both demographics. <clears throat> and we're constantly pushing for the older people who are, who are walking with the Lord to make, avail themselves to the younger people, to be able to pour into them, to teach the younger people, to, to mentor them, to build relationships, to become fathers and mothers in their lives. 
Because that's kingdom principle, it's an important thing. But I tell you, a lot of times in my own heart, when we're having these conversations and praying these things, my mind just goes to, man, there's a lot of our young people that I wish would begin to mentor our older people. There's a lot of our younger people that I wish would avail themselves to our older people to begin to hound them and and push themselves into their lives so that they could begin to rub off and see and expose them to a supernatural reality that we've either never experienced or grown dull to. That's just the reality of it. I still love everyone I'm talking to. I'm just being honest on my experience and how I feel when I pray into this and think about this. And when I was sitting here thinking, what would I title this message? I just had the word supernatural. Literally, I was like, oh, what would come after that? Supernatural this or a supernatural that. And I just like, I just settled on supernatural. And on Friday night, that's what I preached to the young kids. I, I wanted them to remember that there's a whole supernatural life to be lived. Not just a week, a week to experience but a supernatural life to live, to walk out in supernatural realities, opportunities, day by day. I encourage them to pick fights with this natural realm, to pick fights with the godless culture around them, to literally just believe that you have this world-changing supernatural being who has chosen to dwell inside of you, that wants to go before you, and, and produce transformation and shine light in the dark places. And I've been envisioning this reality. I've been pushing really hard towards this reality of, of the church realizing the fullness of what God intended for the church in this life. And it is hard to do, you know, because we are fighting against decades of bad church teaching. And decades of corrupted, self-serving church teaching that has defiled the actual truth of the scriptures and inoculated generations of people from it. And then you mix that with the, the American independent spirit and what we have is an independent gospel that revolts against the idea of Christ and community the way scripture actually talks about it. And there's got to be a hard pushback, and that's what I will do with my life, okay, is push back as hard as I can to the reality that I have experienced, that I have encountered, that God has opened my eyes to, about what the church is supposed to be. The power of two or three or a hundred gathering together in his name, and then he's actually present. And I can't, I can't emphasize that enough. It's been the goal for every person of God from Genesis to Revelation that God would be present. And they knew without a doubt that if God was present, then everything else was gravy. Do you understand that? Everything else. Their only pursuit was, God, are you with me? God, are you with me? If you are not with me, I am not going. If you are with me, what can I be afraid of? That's the consistent theme throughout the entire Old Testament. And it's the consistent theme of Paul's teaching. 
and Jesus' emphasis in the New Testament. That's the whole power of the cross and what Jesus did is that he came to be with us for good. And then he says, when there's two or three of those people that he has come to be with for good, he is there in a whole different way. This corporate expression of the Christ is wholly different than the singular expression of him in you as an individual. And that's what the New Testament teaches. It's what Jesus emphasizes. Why would he say that, guys? Jesus is the one that said it's better for him to go than for him to stay. That's a wild statement for him to say that it's better for the God-man, God in flesh. The Bible says that the fullness of God dwelt bodily in Christ. And he said, it's better for me to leave this place. The only thing that makes sense is the reason, which is because he then embodied millions and billions of of men that have now become God-dwellers. And Jesus knew this. And still, knowing that, he made this statement. When two or more of you are gathered in my name, then I will be with you in your midst. It's easy to look past, and we think it's just rhetoric, but this is Paul teaching a core doctrine. This is Jesus laying the foundation for that core doctrine. This is the New Testament coming into fruition because God's plan was for his church to reveal the manifold wisdom of God. And his plan is for you to be a living, breathing, vital part of that expression on the earth. This is part of the vision I had for, like when I think about our kids, right? We think a lot about how like the public school system has just gotten worse and worse and worse. Our culture is getting worse and worse in the sense of the force pushing against us. There are literally giants in the land waiting, waiting for people to come take their heads off. And there is a drought in the land of giant slayers. And because of that, the giants are pushing forward and taking land and taking our children and taking our culture. And I just had this, this is the picture I was just meditating on. I'll tell you, this is, I just wrote this down in my journal notes. And it's part of when I was reading through Ephesians again. This is the reality I felt like. This is the reality of the picture coming forth in my imagination as I read what God's saying in Ephesians. Because it emphasizes family so much, the family dynamic, because the church is the family of families coming together to express this thing. And I just wrote family, and I said, raise your children in the garden, in the light of the sun. And then because, because I'm, well, because I'm very cultured and literate to some, and because I'm a dork to others, I wrote a Tolkien note in here, right, that says, in the light of the two trees of Valinor. How many, how many Tolkien fans are in here? Raise your hand. When I say that, you know exactly the powerful expression I'm talking about. 
right? In Tolkien's world, in the perfect garden, his expression of what, what his imagination of the garden was, there were two trees in Valinor, which was the land of the gods. And they were a golden and a silver light, and they lit the entire world. And it infused the world with the power of God himself, that those who dwelt in the light of these two trees were the equivalent of superpowered beings within Middle-earth. And so that's what I wrote, right? That's the expression, okay? The powerful thing is that these lights were destroyed, but not before they were captured in these creations of, of God's creation. And those jewels that captured the light went forth through the earth and became the treasure of the, of the earth. Everyone, even the gods, pursued this light. So, I said, raise your children in the garden, in the light of the sun, S-O-N, in the light of the two trees of Valinor, so that it's all they know of life, that they would be raised in the presence of God himself and the community of God, the church family, himself, I wrote himself after that, so that when they do step out and see the world outside this garden, they would see the stark contrast. The reality that the world is cold, dark, bleak, hopeless, and in desperate need of the light. This stark and jarring contrast would be both the source of their unending appreciation for what they have, and their driving motivation for the mission to bring people from the dark and into the marvelous light of the sun. Think about that as a reality. Think about that if that was the reality, because that is God's called reality. This is what he has called us to. This is what he's called us to raise our children in. This is the example and the life source of how our children are to be raised, living in the light of the sun, in the midst of a protected garden, with example after example of giant slayers going in and out of this garden until these kids are ready to go out themselves and see what they're up against and recognize how good and how great their God is. And then they move forward, forward in this confidence. This ties into a whole world of imagination I have with this and, you know, with David and the, the lions and the bears and that whole genre and teaching structure. But I'm just wrapping a bow on it, so I'll go into that next time. Underneath the supernatural, this is what I was thinking. I was beginning to pray, like, why are we not living this supernatural life? When I say supernatural life, guys, I'm not even talking about going out and healing the sick and raising the dead and turning nations upside down. Those are the giants. I'm thinking of lions and bears training things for all of us. What does a supernatural life look like to me when I say this in my mind? It means like this, giving generously even when you don't have it in the savings account. Why? Because you just trust the supernatural reality that God is providing everything you need for life and godliness. That's a supernatural life. 
To be able to take Jesus at his word and not live to store up wealth where moth can destroy, moth can eat and rust can destroy and a thief can steal. To literally want to be like your father who gives generously at all times because he doesn't worry about where it's coming from. A supernatural life that isn't worried about tomorrow or the next day. Like Jesus said, don't worry about those days. They have enough problems. But guess what? Your father who sees them knows. Jesus practically spoke until he was red in the face. Trying to remind his disciples and the people listening to him, guys, you're worth more than the sparrows and the flowers of the field. You're worth more than that. Look at your father. He takes care of all of them. Stop worrying about this and start worrying about the mission. There are souls eternally dying. And you're worried about whether your 401k plan is going up or down this month. It's backwards. A supernatural life puts those things where they belong. In the blessing category that can come or go. And it doesn't change our joy in any way, shape, or form. It doesn't change our our mission and our directive or our attention in any way, shape, or form. Because with an open hand, he gives. And with an open hand, he can take away. And then the response to that is, blessed be the Lord. That's a supernatural life. A supernatural life that says, man, everything that could be going wrong is going wrong. Blessed be the Lord. I still have what I need to represent you well, to take care of the people you've given me to take care of, and live this life until you call me home. That's a supernatural life. But what I was sensing and what I strongly suspect is that too many of us don't believe you have what it takes to live a supernatural life. You just don't believe it. And this is, again, goes back to generations of bad teaching, okay? And the separation of of clergy and regular people and preachers and non-preachers and those who are ministers and those who just come and pay their church tax and, and work their jobs. That is just, it's such a demonic doctrine, You've been plucked out of darkness into this marvelous light, into a kingdom that slays giants for a living. And you were selected for that. But for some reason, whatever it is that's happened in your life, the lies, the deceptions, the strongholds that still lay hold in your mind, tell you and convince you you can't live a supernatural life. You can't go out in your job as a tradesman visiting clients and see that they're hurt or sick and say, let me pray for you. I think the Lord wants to heal you. Maybe you don't even say that. Maybe you say, I think my God can heal you. Can I pray for you? Hey, I overheard you talking while I was cutting down tree limbs or was I fixing your electrical. I overheard you guys talking. You're having a hard time. Can I pray for you? I serve a God who has done so many awesome things in my life. I believe he wants to do it in yours too. What? I can't do that. I'm not like you. I don't have those guts. It's not that. It's just you don't believe you can live a supernatural life. And so, therefore, you never pick a fight. You can't see God win for you if you never pick a fight. This is what I'm talking about picking fights. Just taking opportunities, stepping out, giving God a chance to roar from behind you. But if you never give him that chance, 
because you're bound with fear or you just don't believe you've been beaten down and you don't think you can live a supernatural life. You never get to see victories. I don't care if you're on the hyper-emotional end of the spectrum or the hyper-logical end of the spectrum. There's a middle place where Jesus is that you guys can meet at and watch God bring supernatural victories. There's a hundred stories we could share and tell and give you examples of me and a lot of people I know here who through our lives have given God opportunities to win victories, and he has come through, and he has shown up, and people have come to Christ because of it, and people have been healed because of it, people have been shocked because of it, sometimes 20 years later. It's a supernatural life, but it's not uncommon for you to not think you can. Do you know when God came to Gideon, right, this young guy, and said, I'm going to use you to deliver Israel from your oppressors, Gideon was like, uh, me? I am the youngest child in the smallest family of the smallest tribe of Israel. You have the wrong person. And God said, I don't have the wrong person. And Gideon was like, well, if, if you're really serious, show me this sign. And God shows him the sign. He was like, just kidding. If you're really, really serious, show me again a different thing. And God does it again. And finally, Gideon is forced into believing that God wants to use him to do this. And go read Judges. You can read all about story after story like this. But Gideon goes and God brings about victory and slays the enemies of Israel. Not even by Gideon, but by 300 men that God called to, to be with Gideon. And they did nothing except stand on a hill and break apart with some fire. That's it. Do you have that ability? Can you do that? God had the enemy kill themselves just because they obeyed. Here's another one. God came to Moses and said, Moses, I'm calling you to go deliver my people, so I need you to go back to where you came from, where they want to kill you, where they hate you, and set my people free. And Moses knew what it would take to set the slaves free from one of the greatest military powers on the earth that day. And so Moses said, you have the wrong person. I can't do that. I can't even speak straight. I stutter God. And God was like, no, I have the right person. And Moses was like, no, you don't. No, you don't. You don't have the right person. And God said, fine, I'll send someone with you that doesn't stutter. But you're still going. And God brought about such a deliverance through this guy that literally every New Testament teaching in the Jewish model of a deliverer was modeled after this guy. Then we get into the New Testament, and Jesus has these 12 core disciples that he's following, that are following him. And he's been with them for over three, for almost three years at this point, trying to convince them that they are going to do what they see him doing. And they don't believe it. And time after time, they see miracle after miracle, and they still question who he is and what's going on. So they, they get to this point where Jesus asks them, who am I to you? And they finally are able to say, this is who you are. 
But you know, one of the big things that got Peter to that point to be able to say this, and there's a reason why Jesus harps on Peter throughout the Gospels. Because Peter was the oldest of the disciples. And from reading, he all definitely seems to be the most um, stubborn and zealous. And there's one point where Jesus decides, I'm going to send them out in a boat and I'll catch up later in the middle of a huge storm. And he walks out on the water. So if you're really going to set the bar high, do something like that. Right? I want to show them what I can do and that they can be like me. So I think I'm going to go out in the midst of a massive storm and just walk on the water. And they think it's a ghost because what else could it be? And as he gets closer, it's not a ghost. It's me, Jesus. And Peter, Peter on the boat, this stubborn and zealous man, makes this bold statement and says, Jesus... If it's really you, call me out on the water with you. What an insane statement. And what does that prove? You don't think a ghost is going to call you out on the water and laugh as you drown? Why did Peter think this would validate the identity of who he was talking to? Why in the midst of a storm where the disciples were concerned about dying and they see this supernatural thing happening, did Peter suddenly go to, there's only one way to verify that this really is Jesus. Let's see if he's still telling us we can do what he does. And so he says, if it's you... Repeat the theme of your message to us, Jesus. Call me out in the water with you. And so Jesus says, come on out. And Peter, being the zealous guy that he is, and maybe a little stubborn here, steps out in the water and finds out that he is not sinking. He doesn't know how it's happening. It makes no sense, but what he knows is that what he's stepping on is firm enough to hold his body up. And he steps out, and he begins to walk towards the Lord, and we know he's walking towards him. The gap between these two are closing. And then as we know, this story has been preached for a million different things. He's walking out there, and the storm is still raging. So his mind... Snaps back to the fact that there's a storm. He looks around, sees the storm is all around him, and he begins to panic again. And he begins to sink. And he cries out to the Lord to save him, and the Lord does, right? Reaches down, pulls him up. And what does the Lord say to him? He says, Jesus, my guy of little faith, why did you doubt? Why did you doubt? And this is what we've always gotten from this message of what's been taught, that Jesus kept his eyes, as long as Peter kept his eyes on Jesus, that meant he was trusting Jesus, but then he took his eyes off Jesus and he began to sink, and Jesus said, you should have had faith in me. I don't think that's at all the message. Read the entire chapter, the theme after theme Jesus was penetrating to, into them. Peter already knew it was Jesus. That's why he stepped out. It was confirmed to him already. He's walking on water already. 
He looked at the storms around him and he lost faith in what? That it was Jesus? No, he lost faith in the fact that he could still walk on water. The reality of the world smacked him in the face again. The world he had grown up in, the world he had known, the waves and the storm and what they would do. And his mind went right back to what happens in the natural realm. Jesus picks him up and said, Peter, my buddy, my guy of little faith, why did you doubt? Why did you doubt what? He didn't doubt. He wasn't saying, why did you doubt that I was Jesus? Why did you doubt that you could do what I just called you out to do? And then the whole rest of the chapter is him enforcing the same theme. This is a theme throughout Scripture. Look at Paul. Paul gets this revelation himself from interacting with God. He says, I've come to learn this one fact. That whether I am provided for in abundance or I am in an extreme lack, I can do everything. And my God provides everything. He had to learn that. And he learned that. And it tells us he learned that from coming face to face with battles. And these guys that I'm talking about eventually go and slay giants. And I'm going to wrap it up with this because this is where I wanted to bring it. Next week, hopefully if I can, I'll come and talk about the meat of the message. Because this is the idea, the supernatural life that we can do, but we have to be convinced that we can walk on water. That we can live a supernatural life. But you're not going to be convinced about walking on water until you're convinced that you can trust God to be super generous. Do that first. See if you can live a supernatural life of generosity. See if you can live a supernatural life of trust. See if you can live a supernatural life of kindness to other people who tax your patience. Just see if you can supernaturally live in a way that you don't respond to your inner flesh's desires to, to be angry and strike out and hurt people. Just see if you can go a couple weeks supernaturally resisting the desire to gossip and to take on offense. Live a supernatural life, but intentionally pick a fight with those things. Identify the enemy and then pick a fight. Go on the offensive and see the Lord fight your battles for you and with you and through you. I'm going to close with these, this verse. And this is, it's the same verse I'll close with next week. Double dipping. This is what a supernatural life looks like. It starts small. And the theme of it was this. Like, watch how these guys take on the lions and the bears so that they're prepared to take out the giants. Right? We see that with David very clearly. But David's not the only guy in the scriptures that took out giants. He wasn't some, some action figure hero that only he had these superpowers to do. He wasn't even the first. Realize David was cleaning up the leftovers when he killed Goliath.
When Moses brought the Israelites out of Israel, he promised them a promised land, a land that was flowing with milk and honey, which means great wealth and prosperity. That's, that's what it meant to them. They didn't have dollars and Rolls Royces and Mercedes Benz. They had milk and honey. That was a sign of wealth, someone who could live off milk and the honey. And so they have this promise and they're, so, they're scouting out the land and they send 12 spies to go check the land and they check out the land and they come back and 10 of them are like, there's giants in the land. They're huge. We're like grasshoppers in their sight, guys. That's not the land for us. Let's retreat back into the wilderness of desperation where at least we're safe. And two of them came back and said, it's huge. The grapes are huge. The milk and the honey is flowing like you said. This land is awesome. Let's take it. Do you understand? All 12 of them saw the same thing. All 12 of them saw the same thing. 10 responded to the giants and said, let's get away. And two responded to the promised reward and said, let's go get it. All 12 saw the giants and all 12 saw the reward. And so God responds, right? And says, these 10, because these 10 convinced all of Israel to respond in fear. Caleb and Joshua were trying to say, no guys, Israel, listen, God has promised it to us. These giants will be like grass, grasshoppers to us. And Israel instead responded in fear with the 10. And God said, you people will never see the promised land. You will never experience the supernatural reality of walking with the living God because you allowed fear to lead your life. Because you didn't trust that God is who he says he is and that he'll do what he says he'll do. And because of that, you will die wandering in the wilderness, never seeing the reward. And he kept his word and he raised up a whole nother generation while that generation wandered for 40 years and died off within reach of the promise. And Joshua and Caleb, two things happen. Joshua becomes the next leader of Israel and he leads them into the promised land and conquers the land and divvies up the land to Israel just as God promised. But Caleb, the other spy, his story is just as cool. This is, this is Caleb. I don't even need to describe it to you. I'm just going to read it to you. It says, The descendants of Judah approached Joshua at Gilgal and Caleb was from the tribe of Judah. And it says, And Caleb, son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, said to him, You know what the Lord promised Moses, the man of God, about you and about me. Now he's talking to his fellow spy that, that saw the fruit. I was 40 years old when Moses, the Lord's servant, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to scout the land, and I brought back an honest report. My brothers who went with me caused the people to lose heart, but I followed the Lord my God completely. On that day, Moses swore to me, the land where you have set foot will be an inheritance for your descendants forever, because you have followed the Lord my God completely. This was an added promise that Caleb got. And 45 years later, he's holding God to this promise still. Caleb refused to die before he got the promise. 
but it's so much better than that. As you see, the Lord has kept me alive these 45 additional years as he promised since the Lord spoke this word to Moses while Israel was journeying in the wilderness. Here I am today, 85 years old. I am still as strong today as I was the day Moses sent me out. My strength for battle and for daily tasks is now as it was then. This is an 85-year-old man saying this, guys. This is what the 85-year-old guy says next. Now, give me this hill country that the Lord promised me on that day because you heard then that the Anakim are there. The Anakim are the race of giants. Do I have to repeat that? I want to make sure you get that. On this hill country, you know the hardest type of of land to take? Uphill. The easiest type of place to defend is when you're on the top of the hill and people have to climb up to you. And Caleb said, I want the country up on the hill that is owned by the giants. Don't miss that. He said, this is the hill country the Lord promised me on that day because you heard then that the Anakim are up there as well as large and fortified cities. This guy just keeps getting better. Perhaps the Lord will be with me and I will drive them up as the Lord promised. That's what picking a fight looks like. That's what picking a fight looks like. That's mine by promise from the Lord. And all I see is the fortified city and the land and the milk and the honey and the promise from God that it's mine. So I want to go take it. And just perhaps the Lord will give it to me like he promised. So Joshua blessed Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, and gave him Hebron as an inheritance, which is really cool that that was Hebron, where David becomes the king at first. Therefore, Hebron, listen to this. This was written, this was written about... 13, 1400 years later, after this was written. And it says this. Therefore, Hebron still belongs to Caleb, son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, as an inheritance today because he followed the Lord, the God of Israel, completely. Hebron's name used to be Kiriath Arba. Arba was the greatest man among the Anakim. After this, the land had rest from war. Guys, this land used to be named after the greatest giant among them in the land. Caleb said, that's mine. He said that at 85 years old. And 1,300 years later, they were still talking about how this place used to be named after the greatest giant in the land. But now, today, just like it was back then, it's named Hebron, after Caleb's land. This is the giant that we've been given right here. We've been placed here for the giant. Ephesians 3.10 is the promise that God has raised up a Caleb and raised up a David 
called the church whose purpose is to stand up, shine, express the manifold wisdom of God to the principalities and the powers and the rulers and the giants wherever they can be found so that the whole earth will be filled with the glory of God and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. We're called to this. You're called to this. You can live a supernatural life. It's your choice. Do you want it? Do you want a supernatural life? It takes death. It takes lying, laying your life down. But the reward is a land flowing with milk and honey. There's plenty of giants in the way between here and there. But they will be lions and they will be bears in your story. But you have to pick the fights and you have to believe that God wants to lead you in the path of the supernatural life. Let's stand up. Let's see if you want this. Come on, let's, let's go. This is what I'm telling you. That God has made precious, precious, great, amazing promises to you. And one of them is this. That if you ask him anything according to his will, you will have it. I want you to pretend you're Caleb right now and that you just heard that promise from God. This promise that if you ask anything in his name according to his will, you will have it. That it is the Father's good pleasure to give you these gifts as you ask for them. That if there are things in your life that have stood in your way, whatever the bears and the, the lions are in your life right now, fear, insecurity, doubt, hurt, pain, abuse, guilt, shame, God is saying, come with me and we will go grab that thing by the fur and we will kill it. But you have to stand like Caleb did right now and say, I'm picking this fight because the Lord will give me this because he promised it to me. And I'm telling you right now, he has promised. This is his will for you. And so if you ask for it right now, holding nothing back, willing to surrender your life, willing to say, God, here's my life. I want this promise. I want the freedom and I want the power. I want to know you in the power of the resurrection and the fellowship of your sufferings. I want it. Here's my life. I promise you that God will fulfill his promise to you and give you those victories and they will give you a taste of what it's like to kill a lion. It'll give you the taste of what it's like to kill a bear. You will truly say that you have tasted and seen that the Lord has been good. So why wouldn't he do it again? And why wouldn't he do it again? And before you know it, you have been living a supernatural life. And before you know it, people will be coming up to you saying, train me, show me, teach me. Whatever it is you have, however it is you got it, whatever it is God's doing in your life, I want it. All of it starts right now by you just saying, God, I want it. But you say it with your heart and with your life 
and with your will that you lay down and you say, not my will, yours be done, God. Here it is, my life. Be honest. God, I don't think I can do it, but I want it. Watch him come through. God, come through. God, right now, just begin to release a supernatural stirring in the hearts of your people here. Anyone within the sound of this message, God, begin to release a hunger in them to taste your goodness, to begin to see the goodness of God in the life they live right now. God, give them the courage to step out and face the lion and face the bear. Hey, in Jesus' name, I release courage in the name of Jesus. Supernatural courage. That by the Spirit of God within us, and by his own might, you can live a supernatural life. You can live a life that provokes battles and wins victories and sees the lost in your life come to Jesus because you're burning in the light of the two trees of the Son of God. Go after it, guys. Don't hesitate. Don't rationalize. Set yourself apart right now and just begin to go after it. Begin to ask him. Begin to worship him. Glorify him. Magnify him in your mind. Use your God-given imagination to picture him as the God sitting on the throne who has conquered all. Who is calling you up high with him. That's it. If you want it, go after it. Don't be afraid to come up either. If that's beating in your heart to do it, do it. If it's beating on your heart to get on your knees, do it. To lift your hands, do it. Respond to whatever inklings or thoughts come through your mind right now because the odds are it's the Holy Spirit leading you to an action of surrender. To an action of surrender so that he can come rushing in like a flood with his spirit and his glory.